0: Welcome to Pieces of Art, a podcast dedicated to ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. In this week's episode, we'll be starting our examination of symbolism in art by going on a lion hunt. <laughs> now, if you're looking for lions in art and in history, you don't have to go through the grasses and head over the mountains and do all the all the stuff that the nursery rhyme has you do. You actually just have to open up any art anywhere. Uh, in every time period every culture I can think of off the top of my head, there are lions. And if there aren't lions, there are tigers or jaguars or some other great cat lion equivalent. Uh, The constellation Leo is one of the earliest of the three constellations that we know of. The other two, of course, being Taurus and Scorpio. Uh, Cave lions appear in some of the earliest cave paintings. One of the earliest sculptures we have is of a lion. Of course, it's a leuermensch, so it's sort of part man, part lion, but That's equally cool. Anyway, this is why we're going to be using lions as our gateway into a discussion of iconography, which, in art history speak, is the study of symbols in art. If we're going to get technical, there are actually two different ways of studying symbols in art, iconography and iconology. Iconography is the study of the actual symbol, in our case today, the lion. Uh, and the different ways that the lion gets depicted over time and in different cultures. Iconology is the study of what these symbols mean, how they function, and what they actually do. Generally speaking, we just lump the two together and just call it all iconography, even though technically today we're going to be talking about iconology as opposed to iconography. Iconography, you kind of need pictures for. Iconology, you don't. Now, Unless you live in or have been on safari in Africa, the most likely place for you to see a lion is probably the zoo. But, uh, you've probably seen one in Disney movies, uh, on your computer monitor, maybe your phone. Uh, but you probably have at least some knowledge about what lions are. So, you probably know that lions are found mostly in the savannas of Africa, even though they once spread out all over Eurasia as well. Uh, you probably know that a pride of lions consists of an adult male, a few adult females, and their immature offspring. Uh, You probably have also seen lions sitting around looking rather majestic. Cats in general have this innate ability to look nobly, majestic, and condescending when they're sitting around being lazy little hairballs. Lions take this to extremes. As a result, they tend to look like the dominant predator even when they're not. They act like it too, whether they're killing their own meals or being opportunistic and stealing from a pack of hyenas. Believe it or not, this matters. You actually know what a lion looks like, have some idea of its habits, and you've been in close-ish visual contact with one. There were plenty of centuries where people in Europe, for example, had very little idea. Even though they still thought lions were important, some of the depictions of lions get pretty crazy. If you're ever in New York and decide to visit the Cloisters, which is the medieval art museum that's attached to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, take a look at the lions in the unicorn hunt tapestry, if you can even tell that they're lions. The male lion looks lion-ish, he's got a mane and everything, but the lioness looks like a monkey with constipation. Of course, when we're going to talk about what lions mean when we see them in art, we need to look at the societies that depicted them. And the earliest records that we have of that come from, guess where? Sumeria. Yes, Sumeria, the birthplace of the earliest alphabet, the Zodiac, our standard divisions of time into base 12, and mounted warriors, and the list goes on. Let's, let's look at this early alphabet for a minute, which is where we get our earliest records about lions. The reason we have these early alphabets is because the writings were scrawled onto clay tablets that were sometimes baked into permanence. Remember our discussion about clay and how permanent that is. And now, of course, I have the unreasonable desire to listen to They Might Be Giants and their song the Mesopotamians, but never mind. Uh, these ancient cuneiform tablets give us the epic of Gilgamesh, which is just plain fun to say. Uh, and my favorite character in Gilgamesh is his best buddy Enkidu, which is another really fun name to say. I, these, these epics, they're just hilarious. <coughs> All right, so Enkidu is cool uh, because, well, he's interesting as far as his origin story goes, and he is absolutely tragic. He's pretty much the original self-sacrificing innocent yet wise noble savage. Uh, so Enkidu, is created, not born, and he grows up rather like an Edgar Rice Burroughs character. He's almost Tarzan, but not quite. What does Enkidu have to do with lions? Everything. Because here's where we get our first hint about what lions meant to ancient Sumeria. When Enkidu first appears on the scene, he's hanging out with gazelles and lions in the savanna without a care in the world completely oblivious to the reason for his existence, which is basically to be Gilgamesh's best friend and to stop Gilgamesh from destroying the world. When the gods get tired of seeing him play around in the wilderness instead of doing his blinking job already, they send a prostitute to introduce him to the finer things in life, and after that, he's no longer welcome in wilderness land. So, he takes up a job protecting the local shepherds and their flocks of sheep from scary creatures like lions. The fact that Enkidu is capable of killing lions is actually important to the writer of Gilgamesh, and indeed the tradition continues throughout Mesopotamian history. By the time Assyrians show up on the playground, defending the community against lions has become a kind of ritual that the emperor goes through. If you go to some of these, uh, well, if you go to the British Museum uh, and look at some of the reliefs from these palaces that were once in what is now Iraq, uh, you will see these huge relief uh, panels that depict the lion hunts. And in these lion hunts, we have the emperor sometimes on foot, sometimes riding a chariot, uh, accompanied by his slaves and various soldiers. And he is going to be uh, depicted shooting arrows or using a a sword or a dagger to kill as many lions as he possibly can. Basically, um, the lions have been rounded up, brought into arena precisely so that the king can kill them all and show off how fabulous he is which is now, of course, a ritual way of saying, look at me, I properly defend my community. Speaking of the heroic slaying of lions, the most widely known demigod to accomplish that feat is probably Hercules, or Heracles, depending on whether you're Roman or Greek. The Nemean lion was yet another of those frightening predatorial beasts who was impossible to slay by ordinary means. Heracles ended up having to beat him to death, skinned him with his own claws, and wore the hide as his armor forever after. This means that when you see Hercules or Heracles in art, he'll usually be wearing a lion skin. Here you have to be careful though, because Hercules or Heracles has a half-brother named Dionysus or Bacchus. And Dionysus or Bacchus is sometimes shown with a leopard pelt. He's not usually wearing it uh, around his neck with the jaws over his head the way Heracles does. He's usually got the pelt slung over one shoulder. But the thing is, is that if you decide that that Dionysus is Hercules and Hercules is Dionysus, then you're going to get very confused about uh, the story that's going on. Hercules and Dionysus party together, but are not the same. There's a really interesting way in which dominance over lions or over other animals actually gets depicted in early art uh, and in symbolism. It's called the splayed figure motif, and it shows up all over the world. Uh, So at its most basic, a splayed figure is a person who's standing kind of like the Vitruvian man of Leonardo da Vinci, right, with his legs spread out and his arms wide open. Uh, and on either side of him will be an animal. Uh, so when you see a man with his, right, he's standing and he's got a lion on either side, as a general rule, the way they're interacting is he's going to either have them both by the throat or he's going to be putting them into a headlock. Uh Either way, it's a pretty powerful message of dominance and control. When it's a woman, and women do get displayed figure treatment, generally speaking, she's giving birth. Yeah, while mythological men are going around fighting and killing great cats, women are turning them into pets. A lion fell in love with the goddess Inanna once, and ended up dying for her. Actually, just about everyone who falls in love with Inanna ends up dead, but that's a discussion for another day. The point here is that lions might be the archenemy of warriors like Enkidu or Hercules, but they are guardians and associates of women like, well, like Inanna in Sumeria, Artemis and Athena in Greece, Sibylle in Persia and Rome. Now, Sibylle, in particular, often gets depicted with a pair of lions, either drawing, which is another word for pulling, her chariot, or placed on either side of her throne. Those lions have their own love story. They were lovers once and human, but now they just hang out with a mother goddess. I guess that means they still get to be lovers, just not in human form? Anyway. uh, Oh, and let's not forget Egypt, where there are a couple of goddesses who are also felines. Bastet and Sekhmet both are pretty dangerous deities, and one is a cat and the other is a lion. There is another really important place where lions show up all the time. And I'll bet people who live... (laughs) and I'll bet the people who live a few streets down from me have no idea how far back this tradition goes. These sort of neighbors of mine have two big posts on either side of the walkway going up to their front door, and on each post is a rather cute, snarling sculpture of a lion. They're kind of adorable, and I feel like patting them on the head every time I pass them. Most people know about the lions on either side of the entry to the New York Public Library. The Morgan Library has them, too. Uh, They seem to come standard with how to decorate your mansion, And, well, there's a reason for this. Lions are the original guardians of the gate, right? So they show up in the ruins of a gate from Hatusa in Turkey, above the gateway to the ruins of the city of Mycenae, in the pediments of temples dedicated to Athena and Artemis, and, oh yes, if you like Chinese art and sculpture, you might have seen, or you might have, what Americans tend to call foo dogs. And they usually come in pairs, guarding entries. Chow-chow dogs are, um, sort of Food dog light. Uh, they are, <laughs> food dogs are not actually dogs, right? They are, you guessed it, lions. And chow chows look the way they do because they were bred specifically to look as leonine as possible. So, thus far, lions are enemies, lions are pets, lions are guardians, but we're not done yet. We haven't talked about lions as heraldry, symbols of personal and public identity. For me, this discussion starts with a nursery rhyme uh, that I learned when I was a kid and just never did get out of my head. It's the one about the heraldry about the kings of England, and it goes like this. The lion and the unicorn were fighting for the crown. The lion beat the unicorn all around the town. Some gave them white bread and some gave them brown. Some gave them plum cake and drummed them out of town. The lion and the unicorn are, of course, the heraldic symbols for England and Scotland, respectively. We'll save our discussion of unicorns for another day. But for now, we'll just focus on the kings of England and why they decided that lions were going to be their device. Now, in the Middle Ages, when people wanted to know more about the world, they read bestiaries, which is basically allegorical zoology for the medieval Christian. Everything in the natural world, and I mean everything, gets related to some moralizing aspect of Christian theology in these books. The lion... uh, hang on, let me find it. Here we go. Oh, goodness, I'm not reading the whole thing. I'll just give you some highlights. All right, here we go. Uh, The lion is proud by nature. He will not live with other kinds of beasts in the wild, but like a king, disdains the company of the masses. He loves to roam the mountaintops. If it so happens that hunters come in search of him, the scent of the hunters reaches him, and he wipes out his tracks behind him with his tail, so as to prevent them from coming and finding his lair and capturing him. Ah, and here here we get the allegorical part. So our Redeemer, the spiritual Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of Jesse, the son of David, hid the tracks of his love in heaven, until, sent by the Father, he descended into the womb of the Virgin Mary and redeemed lost mankind." uh some other fun characteristics lions go on and on and on in this thing some some of them only get a couple paragraphs but lions get lots all right uh he keeps his eyes open when he sleeps uh oh and here's the fun one they're born dead the lioness watches over her cubs for three days until on the third day the father comes blows in their faces and awakens them to life There's a lot of latent misogyny in this stuff. Our author here goes on and on and on about lions and lionesses and allegories about righteousness and evil and sin. And guess who's the evil one? Or rather, the mistaken one. Lions are awesome. Lionesses get trapped by sin by accident. Uh, So there you go. Lions are cool and appropriately kingly. Now... Not all cultures have lions. Mesoamerica, for example. No lions in the Americas, not in human memory anyway. But there are jaguars. Jaguars are the biggest cats in the Americas, the top predators, and guess what? Yep, these kings of the rainforest were symbols of power from the time of the Olmecs on. In fact, the similarities between jaguars and humans in terms of their predation and their uh, eating habits led these cultures to believe that any jaguar could be a person in disguise. So people could sometimes be jaguars, jaguars could be people, wear jaguars. And jaguar pelts were a sign of nobility for Mesoamerican cultures, and that leads to another side note. Always know what culture your art is from. Because if you look at a Bonampak mural and see spotted cats, pelts, and you know that Dionysus, the god of wine, often has got spotted cat pelts, well, you might decide that the Mayans were followers of the cult of Dionysus, and therefore big party animals. <coughs> no. Or, let's look at it the other way around. You're familiar with the Mayan theories of were-jaguars, and you see Hercules and Dionysus. Well, of course they must be wares, right? One's a were-lion, one's a were-jaguar. They're wearing the pelts of their animal alter-egos. Uh, wrong. So... Always pay attention to where and when you are when you're looking at art. However, this does bring up an interesting thing. People like associating themselves with animals. Desirable traits often end up being associated with animals, like having eagle eyes or Hawkeye, who is one of the coolest of the Avengers, just saying. Uh, But for our purposes, leonine, right? What is is associated with lions? Hair. Hair which means, of course, having a lion's mane for hair. According to the rules of physiognomics, which is recorded in ancient Greece in the Physiognomicon, that wonderful branch of pseudoscience that connects physical attributes to personal characteristics, this signifies able rulership. And the most famous person in all of history to have this characteristic is, no, not Richard Lionheart, whatever Disney might say, but Alexander the Great. Some future podcast will have to be focused on Alexander the Great because the entire world today is pretty much his fault. In fact, our conception of the classical hero is, at least to some degree, based on the legend that is Alexander the Great, the young prince of Macedonia who conquered as much of the known world as he could manage before he died at the age of 33. That mane of glory that you frequently see in historical heroes, uh, those all stem to Alexander the Great and uh, the ways in which we still associate heroism with the mane of the lion. Now, we can't leave our our discussion of lions without a shout-out to the cat lady, the modern-day descendant of the great prehistoric mother goddess. Ever think of that? If you've got problems, or questions, or issues, or whatever, go find your nearest cat lady. She probably knows stuff. This has been an episode of Pieces of Art, a podcast about ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. Thanks for listening!